So what on earth is heaven? See what I did there? (laughs) All right, I'm going to go now. Um, So I'm sure we all have something in mind when we think of heaven, like some images that are conjured up and just want to let you know that we're all wrong. So whatever, it's not your fault, right? When we think about heaven, all of the conceptions that we have are arrived at with completely earthly logic and reason, and they are inherently flawed because we're not talking about something that is in this life, something that transcends this life. But we all have a couple of images that come to mind, so I thought I'd share a few with you that are pretty popular, Um, right? So here we have, apparently, Jesus just chilling on a cloud with somebody who's looking, sitting down. I don't know why he's standing and she's sitting, but they're having a good time, right? Just in Cloud City. Um, The next we have uh, a stairway to heaven, right? Led Zeppelin. Anyway, so these are also supposed to be gifts. I don't know why they're not like moving, but maybe next time I'll figure out how to do that. Uh, So also, (laughs) if you can't see this, this says, this place is so boring. who wants to just like wear all white? But like th- these are like some of the images that we have when we think about heaven. It's just like this place where nobody does anything fun. Everybody's wearing like a uniform. And lastly, oh, puppies, right? Puppies. Because all dogs go to heaven, right? We know that. We know that that's true. C.S. Lewis believed that there are animals in heaven, so that's good enough for me. All right? So Clive, gotta love Clive. So these are really popular misconceptions about what heaven is going to be like, but we all kind of have that. We don't really know what it's going to be like, but we think it might be boring, and we're kind of afraid of that. And, you know, when you try to describe a place that you've been before to somebody who has no frame of reference for it, maybe you went someplace amazing on vacation, what do you say? Oh, you had to be there, right? Or, like, you're Instagramming, like, vacation photos, and the caption is what? The pictures don't do it justice. It's like nothing to do with your ability as a photographer, right? It's just like, oh, no. But even more so with a place that nobody has ever gone and lived to tell the tale. And yet, if life after death is a reality for us all, and we believe that that is true, that there is a destination, shouldn't we want to become acquainted with it? Shouldn't we want to chart our course We spend very little time thinking about our eternal destiny, and we spend way more time thinking about planning our next vacation to Europe, right? (laughs) Like, you've seen people who are, like, on their Insta story, and they're, like, blasting out, like, what should I do? I'm going to Paris. Any recommendations? Where should I get brunch? And what's the best Airbnbs and stuff? Shouldn't we at least care that much about eternity? (laughs) I think so. And part of the reason why we don't want to spend so much time thinking about it is because we've been sold crappy versions of the story. We've been sold crappy versions of heaven. Our imaginations kind of don't fire anymore when we think about afterlife because we have these bad caricatures in our mind, whether it's from, you know, Sunday school lessons and felt boards and like cheesy songs or like cheap platitudes that we've been given by others. But our imaginations about heaven especially need to be fed. So this morning, we're going to try to allow the breath of God's word of scripture to stoke these coals of our jaded imaginations so that we can imagine 
how glorious it is. And I hope by the end of this series, these next few weeks, that we actually learn to be thrilled with the reality of heaven and the incredible good, a different kind of good entirely that awaits us. But this morning, we're going to be looking at what is typically called by theologians as the intermediate state of heaven. This means that there is an afterlife that exists right now. And the Bible teaches that there is a heaven that exists currently that is not the same that it will exist eternally. That means after Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection of all people and the restoration of all things. This is what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. And this is what Pastor Casey will actually be teaching on a couple weeks from now, is this new heaven and new earth concept. So, but this morning, we're focusing more narrowly on the question of where do people go after life now? And what is it like And if this all sounds crazy and you're new here and you don't even believe in Jesus and you think this all supernatural stuff is so weird, I understand. I'm I'm going to assume, though, that you're here and you're at least curious about what the Bible teaches about heaven, even if you don't think it exists. But I'm not going to spend my time this morning and our time together proving why heaven is real. We are going to look at what Jesus said about it, and that is good enough for me. And Jesus assumes its existence. So let's try what he says. And we're going to do that as was read for us with the most vivid story of afterlife in the entire Bible. And it is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I say story and not parable because, you know, Jesus told a lot of stories which are called parables, and a parable is usually a story that's told just to isolate one single lesson, and none of the other details of the story really mattered. Like he told a lot of stories, like the prodigal son, and like the lost coin, and things like that. The details didn't quite matter. The central point of the story was the only thing that was important. But for this story, it is the only story that Jesus tells where one of the characters is named. And so you have to imagine that some of the other details are also important. And that includes the theology about the afterlife that is part of the story. And so what we're going to see from this story is that after death, the only thing that matters is the human heart. So if you would turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 16, that's where we're going to camp out. If you borrowed one of our Bibles in the back, it is page 511, and we're going to read again chapter 16, verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is a crazy story. And we just need to sit with the weight of that for a moment. This like afterlife soap opera that Jesus is telling right now. It's a little, it's a crazy way to start a story. And the setup of the story 
begins with life on earth, and the stage is set with the wealthiest person possible, right, this rich man, and the poorest person possible, Lazarus. And this was very strategic on Jesus's part to tell the stories this way because there were expectations in his time for who was blessed and who was not. We have to understand how shocking of a twist this is, and this is the reason that Jesus set the story up in this way, is to upset people's equilibrium and their paradigm for who is in and who is out. And this man who was very wealthy, you know, he was obviously wealthy because God was blessing him, right? Don't we believe that, you know? And, and this Lazarus guy, he probably deserved his situation, right? He probably didn't work a day in his life and got caught up in some bad stuff and now he's just mooching off this rich guy, right? These would have been some of the expectations that Jesus' audience had. And according to Jewish law at the time, the La Lazarus, the poor man, was actually ritually unclean due to this skin condition that he had. So there's no way in the minds of Jesus' listeners that he could enter God's presence when he died. He couldn't even be around people. But wait a minute, who ended up where now? Right, the, the, the rich man ends up in Hades, as it's called in the Greek, and Lazarus ends up at Abraham's side. And what we see is that death in this story equalizes their experience. The two most opposite earthly experiences possible quickly become equal and their destinies are completely reversed. So no matter how different the lives that they lived on earth were, the pathway to eternity starts the same way for everyone. And notice that the rich man received a proper burial and Lazarus did not. And yet it did nothing to affect the outcome of their eternal destinies. Because handling or, or mishandling a body doesn't determine anything about its destination. Whether it's you know, burial or cremation or whatever, some religions actually teach this, right? Maybe you've been taught some version of this that it actually matters what happens to the body of a deceased person. And in Jewish tradition, we have a, a custom to bury rather than cremate because of the belief in a resurrection of the body at the great resurrection. And you know, in ancient Egypt, they actually buried their dead with their most prized possessions so that they could carry them into the next life. But this passage teaches how little these rituals actually matter for the eternal destiny of the dead. Augustine actually says, the care taken for the bodies of the deceased is more for the solace of the living than the comfort of the dead. So all of our ideas about what kind of life or what kind of death guarantee you a spot in heaven have just been thrown out of the window by this story. Lazarus, the unclean beggar, is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, as it says in the text. And here's where we're going to camp out a little bit and take a break from the story to unpack some of the terminology about heaven in scripture. So stay with me, this is gonna get a little bit abstract, but there are a lot of things that are said about heaven in scripture using other words than heaven. Here we have one of them, 
Abraham's side, or literally bosom, right? Nice image, snuggling up to Father Abraham, leaning on his chest. So we know a lot of different words are used for heaven, and there are several things that we can kind of deduce just from the story, from the details of the story about what heaven is like. For example, Lazarus went immediately after his death. So there's no like holding tank for his soul. There's no purgatory. Immediately he went to heaven. And Lazarus is with Abraham. And by extension, that means all other people who are a part of God's people. Abraham was this representative patriarch of the Jewish people. And so going to be with him would have meant being with all of God's people. We also learn that heaven and hell are separated by a great chasm. So, and that there's maybe even just for this story, we're not exactly sure, but that there's some type of interaction that happens between heaven and hell. Theologians are kind of divided about whether this means that there will actually be some kind of interaction between heaven and hell after, or if Jesus is just kind of using that as a rhetorical device for his story. Another thing we learned is that after death, they maintained their personhood, right? Lazarus is still Lazarus. This rich guy is still the rich guy, and they knew who each other were. The rich man looked and saw Lazarus sitting there with Abraham. They didn't kind of like melt away into a spiritual pool of nothingness, right? They still have their personhood. Another word for heaven in scripture is the word paradise. So it's a, it's a Greek word that actually captures a Persian concept. And the concept is that of a cultivated garden. That is what paradise is referring to. So this kind of carries the idea of nature under the dominion of mankind, which is actually the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. The Bible says that God created this paradise, this garden of Eden, for people to live in and cultivate. God gave people jobs. Yes, there were jobs before sin entered the world, right? So the, the, he gave the, Adam and Eve these jobs to cultivate this paradise. And then because of sin, Eden was lost, but it was not destroyed. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was not destroyed. We just lost access to it. So rather than think about heaven as some kind of like ethereal cloud city, we need to realize that it's actually the template for earth. Heaven existed first and then earth. In the same way that people we know are created in the image of God, earth was created in the image of heaven. That is what the Bible teaches, that earth is actually the derivative and heaven is the source. So thinking of heaven as like some kind of disembodied state with like spirits floating around has actually a lot more to do with the influence of Greek philosophy on Christians than Christian philosophy in culture. Much of Greek philosophy, the foundation of our educational system, it tries to drive home this idea that body is bad, spirit is good. Right, that we need to transcend our physicalness in some way to become the truer spiritual versions of ourselves. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we're as much physical as we are spiritual. 
God created this world to be good, including our bodies, which means that even this intermediate state of heaven could very well be a physical existence with physical things to enjoy. And we can look forward to that without thinking that that makes us somehow like less spiritual. So this idea of heaven being like a 24-7 church service, gross. Okay, so don't get me wrong. This, this is great. I love you guys. I'm glad you're here. But if you've ever felt like unspiritual when you're thinking about heaven because you're not stoked about a never-ending worship set, right? <laughs> It's because that's not very exciting, and we can admit that. That's okay. You know, people often talk about heaven being, like, beyond our imagination, and that is true. Like, it's, it's grander than we can think of, but if God has created heaven to be a place where we experience paradise, it's going to be good on a level that is better than the best thing that you can imagine, but it might be more than we can possibly imagine, but it certainly won't be less than we can imagine. So the only way I can think about this in incredible nerd fashion, um, I was trying to think about what this is like, and I thought about that scene in Star Wars, um, you know, when Luke is trying to convince Han Solo to rescue Princess Leia when they're on the Death Star, and Luke says, if you were to rescue her, the reward would be more wealth than you can imagine. And Han says what? I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit, <laughs> right? Like, and that's how some of us think when we think about heaven and what God has for us, like, I don't know about this God, this might not live up to the hype, right? But do we honestly think that we have a better imagination than God? Or a better idea of what might constitute paradise? The most important image that we have for heaven in scripture is home. And it's a, a nuance that actually comes out of our story. It's a small detail that's often overlooked in the translation. When it says that Lazarus was carried away by the angels to be at Abraham's side, the translation should actually be more accurately, he was carried home to be with Abraham. And that is the image that we have elsewhere in Scripture. When the Apostle Paul, another New Testament writer, writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we have that confidence that after death, that for those of us who trust in God for what he has for us, that we go to be at home with him because it is the presence of God that makes heaven, heaven. It is our true home because it is the dwelling place of the one who made us. The kind of life, the kind and the quality of life that is possible in heaven is, the, is only possible in God's presence. There's no insecurity, there's no anxiety, all of it, passes away and is this kind of life that was lost in the garden. It is this wholeness that we can have that we are all yearning for in our hearts but can't describe what it is. Home with the Lord. Okay, so I know that was a lot of like philosophical stuff about heaven and there's so much more that we can get into. Again, Pastor Casey's gonna get into a lot more in a couple weeks but we're going to get back to our story. Now in our story, we find the rich man looking up at Lazarus 
from Hades. And this story actually picks up where we left off in our scripture passage from last week when Pastor Casey taught on hell. In Luke chapter 13, the end of the passage that we read last week, it says, in that place, in hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And this is exactly what we see playing out in this story. Lazarus isn't just hanging out with Abraham. They're having a a feast. They're reclining at the table. So the one who Lazarus looked up to from the ground to beg for crumbs from his table now looks up at him at a heavenly feast. The last is now first. The roles are reversed. Because heaven, secondly, is a place of justice. And there is retribution in heaven. So let's read on in verse 24. We'll see more of that. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass here from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This story gets simultaneously more hopeful and satisfying and also more tragic. The rich man, in his appeal to Abraham, demonstrates the hardened condition of his heart. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and let me out of here. Or forgive me, or I was wrong, I should have, you know, Lazarus, I ignored him all of my life. But, and he doesn't even address Lazarus to his face. He tells Abraham, send Lazarus. So he's still treating this poor guy like his lackey. And Lazarus actually doesn't have anything that he says in this whole story. So like we learned last week, the the anguish of hell does not produce repentance or even remorse in the people who are there. The, The rebellious disposition of the human heart, the way that we are all naturally, apart from God's grace, is calcified over and over. So the rich man, now in hell, who has the perspective he needs to want to change his situation, all he wants is to be slightly more comfortable. This is tragic. And, and last week, Casey, uh, he, Pastor Casey talked about a story from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is this kind of like fairy tale, what if story of what if ghosts from hell got to go to heaven and kind of see what things are like. And there is this story within that book of a guy from hell who meets a guy in heaven who he knows is a murderer, and yet the guy is in heaven. And he gets so upset, and he's arguing with him, and he's like, you shouldn't be here, I should be here. And he says, what, what do you keep arguing for? 
I'm only telling you the sort of man that I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And then the other ghost says, or the, the man who's in heaven says, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking and nothing can be bought. And so the man says, why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man and if I had my rights, I'd have been here a long time ago and you can tell them I said so. Tell them I'm not coming. See, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron strings. So we can see that this kind of represents the condition of this rich man in the story as well, that his disposition has been calcified. He no longer wants it. And as kind of despicable as the rich man is in the story, Jesus tells the story because we are meant to examine ourselves to see who we most closely relate to, the rich man or Lazarus. Each one of us can think of a time when it was within our power to care for somebody who is in need and alleviate their suffering, and yet we did not. Does that bother us? And should we be held accountable for that in some way? The rich man's error is not just in how he relates to Lazarus, but his entire idea of what heaven is has nothing to do with the presence of God or being with God. It's just to be more comfortable. Because for those who will go to heaven, life on earth right now is the worst it's ever going to get. And for those destined for hell, life on earth is the best it's ever going to get. And what does Abraham tell him? Exactly that. He says, you have received your good things. He already experienced his heaven on earth. For the rich man, his hope was entirely located in his life on earth. What about us? This story forces us to come to grips with where our hope is placed as well. And for some of us, we are already living in our version of heaven. We're enjoying this life so much that we are not even slightly urged to hope that there might be something greater awaiting us. Maybe that's you today, or maybe you're more prone to despair like Lazarus might have because life is not going well. For many people in the world, the reality of heaven is the only thing that brings comfort at the end of the day. No sense that tomorrow will be better, and like Lazarus, the best thing that could happen would be to be carried home. But lest we think that it has to do with whether we have wealth or possessions or not, Paul, once again, reminds us that it is simply a, a matter of perspective and faith. He says in the book of Philippians, for, to me, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a man who had no hope in his present circumstances, even when it might be good. His attitude of confession and his hope, what his life was all about, had nothing to do with his present circumstances. And I can't imagine that for some of us, we might finish Paul's sentence a little bit differently, right? For me, to live is what? And for many of us, it takes a tragedy or an extreme difficulty to be like 
smelling salts that wake us up from satisfaction with this life. You know, often people talk of like a near-death experience causes you to examine what's really important to you or the loss of a job or the passing of a loved one. And these are often the only things that force our gaze away from the temporal and onto the eternal. But Lazarus didn't have that luxury. He had no illusions about earth being a place of fulfillment. Every day was a reminder of that for him. His hope could not have possibly been located in this life, but afterlife, it says, he was comforted. So there are more clues that we have of heaven being a place of justice because this man who experienced incredible injustice in his life on earth is now comforted. But for the rich man, Abraham says, the chasm has been fixed. There is no second chance. After death, we see from the story that it's too late to kind of change your mind because the door has been shut. The story teaches us that the painful wake-up calls of our lives that we mentioned earlier, loss and grief, these experiences can actually be grace. Tragedy can shake us out of comfort to examine what in our life truly matters. It might be the grace of God arresting our attention before we end up like the rich man, before the chasm has been fixed. C.S. Lewis, uh, once again, sorry, I'm gonna quote him a couple more times. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And for us who are maybe going through some of that pain right now, are we listening? So lastly, we see that heaven is a place of revelation. So verse 27. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is where things get tricky. The rich man appears to be getting the message, right? He's less focused on his own comfort and becomes concerned for the well-being of his brothers who are still alive. That's good, right? Not so much. He appears to be showing concern for his brothers, but is still actually only concerned for himself and has no remorse for people like Lazarus who actually may need help. And the rich man is implicitly, by saying this, blaming the problem of his own destiny on a lack of evidence. He apparently believes that if someone had gone to him, like he's asking Lazarus to go to his brothers, he might have ended up somewhere different. That the only reason that he is there is because someone failed to warn him. Someone didn't do their job. If they did, I might not be in this situation right now. Maybe it's not too late for my brothers. You see what he's thinking there. So in other words, it's God's fault because someone should have told him. 
But Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Abraham explains that they are without an excuse. And here he's talking specifically about the Jewish people and the rich man by implication was also Jewish and those to whom God has revealed his will in written form because this was Jesus's audience. They were all Jewish people. Side note, if you are here and someone has kind of taught you that Jewish people kind of have their own way to God without Jesus, that is not true. Um, When Jesus talked about the necessity of believing in him for salvation, his audience was always Jewish people, like myself. So if you have more questions about that, come and talk to me later. But Paul actually makes that same point, that all are without excuse. He extends that responsibility to all people, not just Jewish people. In the book of Romans, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So, For the rich man, in his case, he had all of the revelation he needed. And in our case, that is true as well. But the rich man continues to protest. In verse 30, he says, and he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the rich man still doesn't change his tune. He says, no, if someone goes from the dead, it'll totally change the situation. So the rich man is still finding fault in God and his word. He flat out disagrees with Abraham. You know when you're arguing with someone and they've already proven you wrong, but you know, you're never wrong, so you will keep on arguing? That's exactly what the rich man is doing here. There has to be some mistake. No, I know about Moses and the prophets, and it wasn't good enough for me, so if it wasn't good enough for me, it's definitely not good enough for anyone else. You've got to do better. You've got to send someone back from the dead. So apparently, he has a better idea of how to get people into heaven. Ghosts. <laughs> right? Send people back from the dead. What's, what's he actually saying here? He's saying God needs a better marketing strategy. He says, I got this all figured out. What you need, you need a blatant supernatural event to just go viral and get a billion views on YouTube and then everybody will believe, right? No one will be able to deny it. More evidence. What we need is not more evidence. Abraham says, neither will they be convinced. And what we see from this is that no amount of proof or evidence can change the nature of a human heart. The more truth, the more revelation we experience from God will either add fuel to our faith or weight to our guilt. And Abraham's response confirms that any act of revelation from God is an act of mercy because it is undeserved. And Jesus cannot do anything more to convince us 
as well. The irony of Jesus telling a story where he says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead is palpable. And here's the greater irony of the story, that the very thing that the rich man is begging Abraham to bring to his brothers is the message we are receiving right now. This passage gives us the message from the beyond that the rich man wanted to get to his brothers. And what this shows us is that it is never too late to respond to God's invitation in this life. The invitation to heaven stands as long as we are alive to hear this message. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, whether you're like the rich man who has justified himself all his life or like Lazarus who is on the outside appearing to have no right to experience heaven, this invitation is for you. And if we're still doubting about that, case in point is Jesus at the cross when he is being crucified between two criminals, one criminal on either side of Jesus. One of them ridiculed him saying, save yourself if you're the Messiah. But the other recognized Jesus as the innocent man who was dying for his sin and said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' response to the criminal? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. To this criminal who is being crucified and murdered for his crimes, in that moment, turned to Jesus and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say tomorrow. He doesn't say after purgatory. He doesn't say after your soul has waited for a thousand years. Today. And he's talking right to him and he says exactly what we've been saying this entire time, which is that paradise is being with Jesus. And this is true for any here today who place their hope in Jesus, that we can have this confidence to know that we will be with him forever. And if you're sitting here thinking, this would all be really nice if heaven wasn't just an old myth to help people cope with the pain of death, right? Be honest, that's okay. If that's you, don't you at least want this to be true? Because if we jettison and get rid of the idea of heaven and life after death that is possible, if we do that, don't, do we have like a, a newfound sense of freedom and ability to live this life to the fullest from doing that? Or do we have more of a crushing obligation for this life to go well? Because it's the only one we can count on. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller in New York puts it this way. He says, all other ways of understanding the world hold that this life is not the whole story, but with secularism it is. That is why all previous religions and cultures have been able to find in suffering and death a way to affirm something that matters beyond and more than just this life. When secular people create their meanings, however, it must be around something located inside the material world. To have a meaningful life, therefore, life must go well. But what if, in deconstructing the ancient myths of heaven and hell and life after death, 
our culture has only removed what is most precious about life, and that is hope. Hope that there is more, and that what's more is better, and that it's far better than anything we could ever imagine, and that our loved ones who believed in this hope and have passed on are experiencing it right now, and that they're looking down as our great cloud of witnesses, as it says in the book of Hebrews, cheering us on and saying, don't give up, press on, that it's all worth waiting for. So I, uh, I had this kind of experience happen to me a couple years ago when uh, I, was, I was on a really long hike with my dad uh, up in the Sierra Mountains. It was like a 10-mile hike, and we did 10 miles in a day, and it was really strenuous, and we were going up this hill, and it felt like it was never going to end, and I couldn't see the top of it, and I had like 40 pounds on my back, and I was like, I didn't train well enough for this. This is terrible. Um, but at a really weird moment when I wasn't even thinking about, you know, anything spiritual or something like that, I had this crazy, like, sideswipe in my mind of a vision that a friend of mine who had just passed away from cancer a couple years ago was just looking from heaven and going, keep going. And he said it like really like plain, like and if you knew him, it would be a lot better. He was just like, go, keep going. And I was just like, I just lost it. I started crying, but I was able to make up the rest of the distance and had no problem. And I just, I can't even imagine the joy that he is experiencing now because he knew Jesus. And in his last moments, the last thing he did before he lost his life to cancer was, was pray for his family because his hope was in the next life. There is nothing here that is not worth giving up to be with Jesus. Nothing. Any pain or loss or trauma, it is all worth it if we do not lose hope. And that is the truth promised to those who trust Jesus with our lives. And if you are not a Christian and you are here today, this is what is available to you. Not some kind of glib, wishful thinking, not like a get out of hell free card, a promise from a God who loves you, that the best is yet to come, and that the worst thing that we could ever experience here is worth it in the end. Paul, once again, in 2 Corinthians says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you pray with me?